Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for episode 35 on January 27, 2021. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Mr. Tom Allenstein, the president and CEO of MedFlight of Ohio and MedCare Ambulance, headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. As I announced in the last episode, Air Medical Today is also a video podcast now too. A big thanks to Michael Christensen, the Executive Director of Air Transport of Sanford Health for being the first interview using video. You did a great job, Mike. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new Air Medical Today YouTube channel. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. If you have not listened to the past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There is some really interesting information on how programs are reacting and adapting to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as handling the stress that this has caused for frontline staff. In the last several podcasts, I have been interviewing the leaders of various air medical programs. While there are many similarities, there are also some big differences on how these programs are organized and operate. Please tune in to these informative podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. To date, Air Medical Today has 20,600 likes or followers. Thank you. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Allenstein, the President and CEO of MedFlight of Ohio and MedCare Ambulance on the podcast today. Tom has been in this role at MedFlight since 2015 and has served as the Chief Clinical Officer and Chief Operating Officer from 2004. In 2020, he also became the President and CEO of MedCare Ambulance. Prior to MedFlight, Flight and MedCare, Tom worked as a transportation nurse manager at Mayo Medical Transport and as a transport nurse with Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center. Well, Tom, welcome to the uh, Air Medical Today podcast. It's uh, really great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me, Edward. It's been a long time since we've had a t- chance to talk like this. Yeah, it's it's nice. I uh, I know when I do these, I always learn something new, and I know we've known each other for a long, long time, and uh, from uh, preparing for this, there's some things that I did not know about you, but let's uh, 
first talk about, and all these, I'd like to, you know, talk about the people uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, Med Flight of Ohio, but I wanted to talk about you too. You started your career uh, as a nurse, uh, but uh, I noticed that you first majored in uh, chemist chemistry and biology uh, before starting your associate degree. Was that a change in direction? Were you thinking of being Yeah, a... so I actually started out in pre-med. Yep, I, uh, I, I guess that. In the University of Northern Iowa, yep. uh, majoring in chemistry and biology. Um, kind of realized shortly thereafter that that was going to be a lot more work than I probably really <laughs> wanted to put into it. My ultimate goal was anesthesia. I, I always wanted to be oh. an anesthesia, so I was going to be an anesthesiologist. But uh, I have uh, two sisters who were nurses uh, up in Rochester, Minnesota. And um, so I kind of steered course to go into nursing to hopefully get into uh, nurse anesthetist school. So that's kind of where I veered off from pre-med and went into nursing. I got you. With, was, uh, besides your sisters, was there anybody else in your family that was in healthcare? Nope, no, yeah. no, just those two. Interesting. Um, uh, and then uh, you uh, are from Iowa originally then? from. Yeah, so I'm from yeah. Northern Iowa, is almost yeah. on the border of Minnesota. So I don't have the accent, but lived in the cold weather. So <laughs> what, what town? Charles City, Iowa. It's just oh. outside of Mason City, Iowa. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, where, where the music died. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, from uh, 84 to 87, I noticed you worked out in Idaho at the Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center in Idaho Falls, um, and you were, a, I think, a charge nurse in the ICU and the ER, and the member of the aortic balloon pump uh, resource team. Uh, that, but, but then you helped develop the air medical transport program. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so it was really kind of interesting. When I graduated college uh, from Rochester, Minnesota, um, there were no jobs in Rochester. There was a, a nursing strike going on in the Twin Cities. Oh. So a lot of those nurses came down to Rochester to work uh, while they were on strike up in the cities. And so uh, knowing I needed to get a job in a critical care unit to get into anesthesia school, um, just fate would have it. I saw an ad in the local paper for a position out in Idaho for ICU and ER. And I thought, well, why not? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So yeah. I moved out to Idaho and, and uh, started in their ICU and their ER um, with the whole intent to just get a few years in the uh, uh, experience and then come back and go into anesthesia school. Um, while I was there, I got fortunate enough that we decided that we were gonna start up a, a new flight program out there flying into places like uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and, and Salt Lake City, and, and all of that. Uh, the program lasted about a year, and uh, they, they pretty much shut it down, I think. They didn't have uh, real full administrative support at that time, and so they shut down. Um, it was about the same time that, that my first child was born, so we decided to move back to Minnesota to be closer to home. But, you know, it is uh, something that I look on fondly because the experience I got out there was just uh, absolutely phenomenal. We, we had an uh, invasive cath lab that put in a lot of balloon pumps, and so you saw uh, I it was part of a balloon pump team. I was yeah. on call um, for seven days straight 
anytime a balloon pump would be put in, I had to go in and help do the insertion, help manage the patient for the first few hours. And, and for that, I got a dollar an hour to be on call. And that's why even today, I know there's 168 hours in a week <laughs> uh, because that's how much money I made to be on call for the week. <laughs> so, but uh, talk about the flight program. Is that program still in existence or? Well, uh... They closed down. Uh, I moved back in 87. We shut the program down uh, right around that time. And then they started up again in 1990 as Air Idaho Rescue. Okay. Uh, they managed it for a number of years. Uh, I think Air Methods ended up buying the program. So Air Methods now operates it still in, in Idaho Falls and in several other places out there. And so was it, you were uh, just asked to, to be on that team or yeah. you had volunteered or? So there was about, uh, I think there was uh, eight, nine of us that were more experienced. Now, when I say experienced, I only had about a year, year and a half of nursing experience when I got asked to do that. But I was a charge nurse in the ICU, in the ER and, and everything else. So, um, I, you know, I moved forward and said, yes, I'd like to do it. So we volunteered. We did a bunch of training. We went down to, uh, at the time, LDS Hospital in Salt Lake City, did, did some training with them. Where I first met uh, Frank Thomas, he probably doesn't remember that, oh. but it had a big impact on me. Yeah, back then. Um, but yeah. Well, it's 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 always interesting to see where people first get into the uh, air medical world. So you moved back to Rochester in '87 um, to become a staff charge nurse in the cardiac surgical ICU. Were you looking still to um, go into? more of the anesthesia nurse anesthetist, or were you looking to get work with the Mayo flight team? So, or both. <laughs> the bug got in me. The bug got in me. Once I started flying and seeing, yes. you know, this was way cooler than watching a person sleep. Um, I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. So when I moved back to uh, Rochester, it was with the intent to get on the flight team. They didn't have any openings right away. So I had to buy some time. I joined uh, staff at the surgical um, intensive care, cardiac surgical intensive care unit, which was another great experience because uh, I took care of uh, patients all the way from day-old babies up to uh, 100-year-old people having redo valves and, and all of that. So uh, the experience was phenomenal. They had some of the world-class surgeons that were doing stuff that, you know, a lot of places never saw, and we were doing them several times a week. So yeah. really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, it, it mirrored a lot of what I liked doing with uh, the flight team because these were sick patients. Um, you were almost dealing with trauma types of events when they started bleeding out. You were treating them like a trauma and you dealt with cardiacs and neuro. You got the best of all worlds. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So then once you became part of the transport team, you became the transport nurse manager um, in 97 yeah. and served in that until 2004. Um, why did you step up to that role and what were the duties um, and some so, of the highlights from that experience? Yeah, so that was uh, one of those things that um, the job came open and you know, it's always been kind of my own personal philosophy is 
you know, it, if you don't put yourself in for it, you have no reason to complain about who gets it. So yeah. I threw my name in the hat. I, I knew that there were others more experienced, more knowledgeable than me and, and everything else. But, you know, I, I really felt like I could do something um, better with it. And so I threw my name in the hat and, you know, through the uh, fortune or maybe it's their misfortune, I don't know, but uh, I was selected um, to, to lead that charge. And, and that was my start in, in truly the, a leadership role. And I never looked back. It was, it's been a great career. What were some of the highlights? What, what exactly did that position do? Were you... So I was over the, the Mayo One Rochester team. Um, which is a helicopter. We also had Mayo Medair, which was fixed wing. Mm -hmm. um, so we managed that. Um, some of the highlights uh, of, of my time there um, was that we started another base in Mankato, Minnesota. And so to, to get that base up and operating, figure out different uh, things with that, because we actually incorporated residents into the staff and, and utilizing residents. Uh, Mayo was a traditionally, it was a nurse nurse program. Um, we incorporated nurse medics into the program uh, on both the, the fixed wing, Mayo Med Air, and then when we opened up the Mankato base, we incorporated them out there, and that was a great asset to the team, and I think really changed the dynamics of that team and, and our abilities. Um, and just, you know, the, the team was absolutely phenomenal to work with. They were such highly skilled, highly motivated uh, people that was, you know, it was easy to serve them because A, I'd worked alongside of them. I had the best of all worlds. I was doing management, but I could still hop on the vehicles and, and go with them every now and then and, and do some yeah. things that we were doing. We we're single pilot IFR. We were flying uh, you know, doing a bunch of different things with GPS approaches. We were one of the first programs to actually be involved uh, in the GPS approach program um, back when Dan Norman and Steve Hickok were. Oh, yes. Large. Yeah. Um, and so we did a lot of stuff with that. That was very exciting. You put a lot of those around the state. I know there was one into Abbott in, in the Twin Cities. That was put yeah, in by me. Put a bunch of them in. I don't remember yeah. how many, but we invested a lot into that infrastructure. Yeah, that's great. So um, I remember talking to Rod Crane. I think it was two thousand three or four, uh, who had you know just started as the president and CEO of MedFlight of Ohio, and uh, I remember him relating to me that it says one of the biggest mistakes he had made uh, is not having the final decision in in hiring. Uh, for the chief clinical officer, uh, he said he's never going to make that mistake again. Uh, you know, leaving it up to a committee that you know you you advise have them advise, but the, that the CEO makes the final decision. Um, you were an applicant, I believe, in that process, but um, you know weren't uh, originally chosen. Uh, tell us what Rod did, and how you became the chief clinical officer, and then later uh, chief operating officer. Yeah, so that position actually came open as the chief operating officer. And oh. I'll never forget, I came here and I interviewed and I was in our big conference room and we had a horseshoe shaped uh, desk uh, around the room and there were 30 people lined up in that room. That was our leadership team back then. And everybody went around and got to ask a question and then they got to the- So interview. was this in Columbus? This was in Columbus. Yeah. And then they went around again 
um, and ask the second question. So I was in there uh, over two hours being oh my God. and everything else. Now, mind you, I'm from Rochester, Minnesota, and I come to Columbus. It's January, and it's 60 degrees in January in Columbus. <laughs> and it was probably minus 30 when I left Rochester. <laughs> I brought my wife here and you know, it was one of those things that I wasn't really actively looking for a job. And, and yet, you know, once I came and I talked to the people, I really fell in love with it. Um, uh, that was in January. In, in March or so, we had the Ames Conference in Washington, D.C. that we used to do every year, the mid-year conference. And I saw Rod and he came up to me and he said, you know, I really like you and I really would love to have you as part of the team, but the, you know, the, the, the group picked somebody else and I'm like, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to, you know, yeah. be upset about it. I really wasn't looking, but I'll, I'll try it. And, and, you know, and well, it didn't work out. I went back home and I just told my wife, um, because I knew who they had selected. And, and I told my wife, don't, don't unpack your bags yet. I'm just not sure that that person's going to work out. I know the company, I know what they are looking for. And I knew that person and I knew that probably wouldn't be a good fit. And sure enough, about uh, end of July, early August of that year, um, I got a phone call from Rod and he said, Tom, uh, are you uh, home? Is it possible? <laughs> I'm in the Twin Cities. Can I come visit you? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, and so I told my wife, I said, because I'd gotten wind that he had terminated the other gentleman. Oh, you had. Okay. And, and um, so I told my wife, I think he might be coming down to see if I'm still interested. And sure enough, all my kids are lined up. They know what's going on and <laughs> of them didn't want to move and, and all of that. And he comes knocking on the door and he's carrying a dozen chocolate roses. Yeah. And he hands them to my wife and, and we sat down and we talked and I pretty much accepted the offer. He did offer me the job and I accepted the offer right there on the, on the spot. Yeah. It's a, it's a great story. I remember Rod telling me that. And, uh, I think a good, uh, lesson as a leader too, that, uh, you can't do everything by committee. So that's right. You know, uh, there, there is, you know, input, but you know, sometimes yes. the decision falls solely yeah. on you. So were you, was it chief clinical officer and so chief I was officer? Hired, so he changed the job position to chief clinical officer so that it had to be a nurse and the other person wasn't a nurse. And I see. And okay. The people that had applied weren't nurses. And so he wanted me to really oversee the clinical aspects of it, but also, you know, the role was really the chief operating officer role as well. I, I, I oversaw all of the operations. Yep. Excellent. So in 2015, uh, you were named as the president and CEO after Rod uh, retired. Uh, was that a big transition for you uh, or were you already really uh, ready given your experience as the COO? Yeah, so it, it was kind of interesting. So Rod retired and, and he retired fairly abruptly um, the end of 2014. So um, I thought he was going to keep going all the way to July 1st, and he ended up uh, deciding he was going to retire in December of 14. And so they named me interim. And while I was interim, uh, they held a number of meetings, the board, they being the board, held a number of meetings with the partners here. We call our, our, our employees partners. Uh, mm -hmm. at play. And so you had a number of meetings with, with the partners here. Um, because uh, there was, 
there were times where I wasn't the most popular person. We made some decisions and Tom's job was, you know, as, as second in command to enforce those decisions in, yeah, and make implement. those things happen. You right. Know? And so I wasn't necessarily the most popular person. And there were there were several people kind of pushing against me and and everything else. But there were also some uh, quite a few that were in support of me going into that position. And and, you know, they just didn't know me still, even though I'd been here for um, 10 years, they still didn't know really who I was because it wasn't like program to run. Rod ran it his way. And, you know, I had my own thoughts of how I wanted to do it. So um, that year was pretty tense. And I was named uh, interim initially. And then uh, the interim tag was pulled off in about October of 2015. So yeah, yeah, I think I do remember that. So, uh, wow. And then so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, MedFlight of Ohio now. Um, uh, Another Rod Crane story. I hope he uh, is listening to this podcast. Uh, I think it was about 1995. I was uh, at West Michigan Air Care and I think had done one of the first mergers in the industry of uh, two competing programs in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, he had contacted me about, you know, the merger, what types of things he should be looking for. And I said, well, that's great. I need some uh, help with. Uh, uh, Came's accreditation. So we sort of traded off on that. Um, but uh, I, I remember that that merger and, and all mergers are difficult and it was in Kalamazoo too, but uh, tell us about the formation of MedFlight of Ohio, you know, from, I think it was the Grant Medical Center and the Ohio State University SkyMed program. Talk about Yeah. That. So, so um there were two competing programs here in, in town. There's really uh, essentially four big health systems here in town. There's Ohio Health, which Grant is a part of, Ohio State, Mount Carmel, and, and Nationwide Children's. And so Grant had their own program that they started in 1982. It was well established. I remember um, passing, uh, uh, crossing paths with the, the people from Grant at AMTC conferences uh, years ago. They did a lot of research, great program. SkyMed started their program about five years later in 1987. And, and there was a lot of media here locally about, you know, the air wars and battling and, and you know, racing to scenes uh, to beat each other there. And, and uh, so in about 1993, 94, Rod Crane and uh, Cy Woodrum was actually asked to come in and look at um, consulting on how do we merge these two programs? We need to decrease healthcare costs where, you know, uh, overhead is, is being duplicated. There's a lot of issues going on. And so Rod coming from the Twin Cities where he managed the, oversaw the Lifelink 3 consortium, right. had a little bit of understanding and, and came and, and uh, worked through that and pitched a proposal to which in, in April of 1995, uh, the two health systems, uh, Grant and you know, OSU, agreed, and they merged the program. Um, and and I've always told Rod that you know I have the the greatest admiration for him because 
you know, while I came in and, and had to, you know, manage the, the company and, and all of that, it was well established already. And um, I have a series of leaders be beneath me that help, you know, work with uh, all of the different areas. He did this by himself, you know, yes. he, he really yes. put this thing together by himself and uh, did such a phenomenal job. And, and really, if there's lessons learned on anything, it's really to pay attention to how important culture is whenever you merge programs because we had two different cultures of people you know you had the osu people and you had the the grant people and there was some cultural differences that that um, even 10 years into the program when i got here there was some you know remnants of the of the two cultures yep. that, that i dealt with um, about a year into the program in 96, we, uh, MedFlight bought into Riverside Hospital, which is part of Ohio Health now. Back then it wasn't, but they had a ground critical care um, division. And so Rod said, you know, we can't just uh, always fly patients. We need to have alternatives. And so he had the wisdom to foresight to be able to see we need to transport patients even when weather's bad or they don't need the expense of a helicopter. And so he bought the, the ground critical care division. And, and even then, you know, there was some challenges because, you know, you've got, you know, flight nurses who say, I don't ever want to go on ground. You know, I'm a flight nurse. And then you got the ground people. Right. And, you know, it, it was truly a, a you know, a caste system. It was it was a difficult uh, thing for him to work through. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's organization. Uh, you know, a year later, and just really built the company at that point. Yeah, it is a lonely. That uh, when I was in Kalamazoo, it was basically me, and still I started hiring people. And uh, you're right. And I think the the other thing that's hard. Um, in that case and in Kalamazoo was uh, the two organizations still exist. Right. It's not like they merged and right. you formed the flight program. So you still have that and you still have the physicians and the clinical staff at each hospital saying, well, that I remember them saying, well, it can't be as good as our program. You know, and it well, wasn't. And it was interesting because Grant was a level one trauma center. OSG was a level one level trauma one. center. Yep. How are we going to take these scene patients? Where are we going to yes. take them? Can't just take them to a level one trauma center. We got two of them, and so they actually built a program where our our communication system uh, on any of those undesignated scene types of calls um, alternate. We take yep. one to Grant, we take one to OSU, one to Grant, one to OSU. And when I say undesignated, there are certain designated ones like children's are going to go to nationwide children's. Burns are going to go to OSU, yep. those kinds of things. Yeah, it's uh, in Kalamazoo, it was more, we went strictly just by where the referral was made, you know, wherever yep. they referred. Um, when, do you know when the two original programs were formed? So uh, Grant Life Flight started in 1982, and uh, OSU SkyMed started in 1987. 87. Uh, okay. Fun fact, uh, fun fact that uh, Grant and their program, um, they had a base that they started in a little town in southern Ohio called Wellston, Ohio. Um, that was the very first outbased, to our knowledge, very first outbased helicopter. Oh, in interesting. Yeah. All the other helicopter programs 
we put them on tops of hospital roofs, right? Yes, right. They had the, the mentality to look at it and say, well, why are we where the patients are coming to? We need to be where the patients are. That is a placed an aircraft in Wellston, Ohio. That is a good fact that, that I've learned something new. I didn't know that. Um, um, how many uh, consortium members are uh, part of uh, MedFlight of Ohio? And so we're owned by by two two health systems, uh, Ohio Health, which now has a, a whole bunch of hospitals and, and all of that that they own, and then the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. So we have two um, consortium members. We have. Uh, from each of those, we have two uh, board members. So we have two board members from Ohio Health, two board members from OSU, and they're usually high-ranking uh, individuals. Like from Ohio Health, we have a president of, of one of the hospitals. We also have a senior VP in finance. Um, from an OSU side, we have a chief administrative officer from the health system, and then we have uh, a controller um, who uh, works for the university hospital. And the interesting part of the, the, that person and why they're on that board is uh, that individual was my former chief financial officer. So he oh. worked for flight as a chief financial officer, <laughs> left here, went to uh, OSU as a controller, and then got put on the board. So <laughs> go back to, you know, one of the lessons learned is be careful of the butts you kick on the way up because they may be the one you have to get back down. Yeah. So as soon as he got named to this this position, and he's my current board chair, um, I asked him, you know, John, did I treat you well when when <laughs> you know, I was your boss? Because now you're mine. So just always remember, you know, yeah. things go around and they come around. So plus, uh, uh, he knows a lot about where to ask questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From he a knows, financial. He knows yeah. All the skeletons inside. <laughs> yes. the yeah. Um, you have some different types of members too, right? Could you explain yeah. affiliate and so, partner? So, yeah. Uh, so we went out and uh, for a while there, I think it was late 2008 or somewhere in there. Um, no, it was before that, 98, sorry, uh, late 90s. Um, Akron General, uh, they came to us and said, could we be a part of this consortium? But the two owners said, well, you know, we don't mind having somebody in there, but we don't want any equity to be divided up. So they uh, had uh, Akron General join as what we classified as a class B member. So we had the two class A, which were the equal owners. And then you had a class B, that class B got one, um, one board seat. It was non-voting um, and, and they could be participating in the board and all of that. Um, later on in, in, in 2000, uh, um, Akron General got bought up by the Cleveland Clinic, who has their own uh, transport program. Yep. So uh, they ended the contract with us, um, took on with the Cleveland Clinic. But we also have uh, a level of membership called an affiliate member. And so uh, Kettering Medical Center over in the Dayton area is an affiliate member, for instance. They pay uh, an annual dues. They get their name on the side of the vehicles. Um, they actually help support one of the bases over in uh, Western Ohio financially. Um, we also have Adina uh, as a health system. They are an affiliate member. Uh, they get their name on the side of a vehicle, as does Holzer uh, Medical Center down in, in Southern Ohio. So we have an affiliate members. 
we have class B and we have class A, although right now we don't have any class B members. That's, that's the structure of our. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's a nice way to include other hospitals too. Um, I, back to your board. Are you a board member? So I'm too? not. Uh, okay. I am staff. I attend all the board meetings and of course have to answer for everything, but we have four deciding members and they four. are two from Ohio health and two from OSU. Okay. And then um, is your board involved in strategic planning? And uh, if so, how, how often do you do strategic planning? Uh, our board members, uh, every year we, we do an annual uh, strategic planning session. We develop a uh, strategic plan that goes uh, basically three years, but we check it every every year to make sure that we're on target. Like this last year, we had a lot of changes. So we've just revisited the strategic plan to see what alterations we want to make, because it's always been my feeling that strategic plan isn't something you write and then put up on a shelf. It's something that your operational plan has to be bought into all the time and constantly be looking at it. And then mm -hmm. things change, you know, we have new competitors enter the market. Well, it changes kind of some of our strategic thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, different government things that force uh, things down on you. You got to change your strategic thoughts. And, and so um, we're constantly adapting and changing, you know, and I think that's uh, really, I think the key to a successful program is one that can really adapt and change through time. Yeah, I'm, as you know, from, you know, strategic planning is one of my big areas yeah. that um, I learned, I learned from you. Yeah, well, from uh, yeah, MTLI. Um, talk about uh, your mission, vision and values. So, you know, this is probably one of the things that, you know, I'm most proud of here is as you look at a mission and, and who you are, you know, our mission is to provide uh, customer focused medical transportation solutions. And I always break this down for our, our people, customer focus. Well, what does that mean? You know, who is the customer at the end of the day? Who are we focused on and, and what are their needs? Um, and this is where I bring my mail uh, to me as well. One of the things that, that I learned very quickly at mail, everybody knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Um, but we live the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is do unto others as others wished done upon them. You know, because we would, treat, we would treat heads of state and, and kings oh, yeah. and, and all of that. Well, I certainly am not going to, treat the king of Jordan the same way that I would treat myself. So, you know, and I think that's the way I look at it here is customer focused. You know, we think that we know what they want, but do they, you know, do they really want that? And so we need to be focused on what their needs are. And the other word in all of that and in, in the mission is solutions. And I just mentioned, you know, how we looked at our, our board structure as a solution. We've looked at all kinds of things. We had a, a county run EMS that came to us in the late nineties and said, could you manage us? Well, we're an air medical company. What do we know about running an EMS? But we said, you know what, we'll give it a shot. We ran it for about 10 years. And in that 10 years, we lowered the levy that was required of the tax uh, payers over there and increased their service and made mm. it better. Um, we had a, a company out of Indiana come to us and say, could you dispatch for us? And we're like, well, we're an Ohio-based company. What do we know about Indiana? But yeah, you know, we'll do it and, and we'll, we'll go for it. And so we uh, dispatched and we've been dispatching for them ever since. Wow. 
Yeah, there's a there's a gentleman here in Columbus that has a series of restaurants, and he has a, a, a mantra that he has with uh, all of his uh, restaurants, and that is, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? And so that's been kind of our focus and our mission. Um, our vision is really to be the premier provider of medical transportation logistics through innovation and customer focus. And, and when I say premier, we know we're not the only one. There's a lot of great programs out there. We want to be the one that people think of, and that's who you would want your loved one transported by. We want to be that. Yep. And then, uh, finally, you know, really pushing into our values. Our values are safety, integrity, excellence, accountability, and compassion. And as we look at safety is the top. And I always tell people safety uh, is not a priority here. Safety is a value. Yeah. Priorities change, values don't. Yeah, and so absolutely. Just, you know, and, and I think our people really resonate with a lot of that. And I see so much going on. I mentioned uh, before uh, we took on ground critical care years ago and we had this dichotomy of I'm a flight nurse, don't put me in a ground ambulance and everything else. When I first came during bad weather, you know, most of our teams would sit around and well, can't fly, can't fly, right? We had a few teams that would do stuff by ground. They'd hop in the back of an ambulance and go transport that patient. And, and we did about 20 of those a year when I first came. Last year, we did over 600 where we wow. threw our team when they couldn't fly for either weather or maintenance and they don't even question it anymore. They're just yeah. like, let's take care of the patient. Let's go. And That's right. Marvelous stuff. Yeah. I have, I have some questions for you on the, on your ground. Um, Cause I know you've done a lot with that, but before we get to that, um, talk about your senior leadership team. Uh, what are the positions and, um, does MedFlight, is MedFlight totally independent or do you rely on any services from your consortium members? No, so we're completely independent, 501c3. Yep. Um, and so I have, uh, and, and these people just joined as these chief officers last year. Uh, um, I have a chief financial officer and I have a chief operating officer. And then uh, uh, the next level is I have five vice presidents that oversee different areas, clinical operations, um, in, in information services, um, uh, and, and business development, risk management, um, our ground versus our air. And then I have uh, about 10 directors and managers that, that oversee specific functions within the the realm. And, and so, you know, this team of about 17 uh, is, has been scaled back from 30 when I first came. Um, and so these, and the company has grown exponentially too, uh, might I add. Oh, talk about that. What, 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 what do you mean? So um, last year, in, in March of last year, we were a partner on a ground-based ALS uh, BLS system. We were a 60% owner in MedCare Ambulance. We had a, a partner from Michigan that managed it, and they were the 40% owner. Um, we bought them out last year in March, yep. about a few weeks before COVID hit. Um, so we started the, you know, management of this ALS-BLS ambulance and didn't really increase a whole lot. I think we increased three leadership people um, out of that, that mixture. So um, 
it's been a great venture and it's probably one of the things that, you know, again, will be a highlight of my career uh, in doing and, you know, recognizing that we need to move patients, you know, regardless of whether they're ambulatory, uh, wheelchair bound, all the way to, you know, critical care um, helicopter. And so we do uh, about 60,000 transports via our ground, another 5,000 critical care uh, transports. Um, and it, we went from about 150 to 170 employees to now we're over 500 uh, partners with both MedFlight and MedCare. Yeah, so uh, I'll skip down. You're on your ground, the critical critical care ground was out of the MedFlight program, yeah, right? And then the yeah. other venture you talked about was ALS BLS, right? Correct. As yep. the, the MedCare Ambulance. That's yep. Yeah. They, they do ALS, BLS, and then uh, wheelchair. And that, um, you, so that was a separate joint venture until you just bought it out last year. And what was the reason? Why did you buy it out? Well, I think we had, you know, some, uh, the company that we were working with, they were Michigan. Uh, uh, that's where they were from. And they were looking to sell their total book of business. They have a number of joint ventures throughout the United States. They got some in Illinois and some in Michigan, some in Ohio, and they were looking at selling. And we didn't want to necessarily have uh, our 40% share of Medicare bought up by another company. Um, so we decided this is the time that we should buy into that, that 40% share and get full ownership. Um, it's really here to serve uh, my owners, being Ohio Health and OSU, um, the Adena Health System, and, and some of the other health systems around. Um, but it was really Central Ohio focused. And so they wanted uh, control of that. They, being my board, wanted control of that uh, for their systems. So was MedCare a, a separate 501c3 then? With- it is, and, and now it's a wholly owned subsidiary of MedFlight, but it is a 501c3. It's still a separate corporation. Yep. Is it the same board of directors? So it is slightly different. We have two overlapping, one from OSU, one from Ohio Health that overlap, sit on both boards, and then they have separate members. So each board has four members. So there's two that overlap, two that don't on both I see. Boards. But again, from... Uh, Grant OSU or Ohio Health and OSU. That's correct. Yep. Um, So let me go back up. Um, uh, Does MedFlight operate uh, with a break-even budget or or do you have some subsidy from your uh, owners? Yeah, so... Uh, for the first number of years that, that we operated, um, what uh, the billing back then was that MedFlight would bill the receiving hospitals for that patient transport. And, and then in 2000, um, we switched to third-party billing. So in, in 2000, when we went to third-party billing, there was a subsidy set up to help cover some of the shortfalls for the, the uh, bad debt and self pay that couldn't pay and, and all of that charity care. And so they set up a, a, a subsidy back then. And that subsidy remains today, although it's been cut three times just in the last 10 years, we've, yep. we've lowered the subsidy three times, but we do still get subsidized by our owners. Okay. 
Is that primarily because of the ground or uh, is it ground? Uh, yeah, because reimbursement, it, you know, it's such a necessary uh, tool, but the reimbursement is so poor on ground yes. and the model yeah. that we have of having crews that are highly trained, highly qualified, um, standing around waiting for those calls. You just don't make it up. You know, I get $200 for a Medicaid types of, of patient yeah. and it doesn't cover the fuel that it takes. Uh, yeah, you just can't bill as much for the that's it's a real dilemma. And I think it's something that needs to be rectified uh, to recognize I mean, there's specialty care, but it doesn't really uh, give you much more than ALS. It's it really needs to be a critical care level. And I and I look at the patients that these people are transporting. I mean, they yeah. are on Pella's ECMO's uh, LVADs. Um, nine drips, um, you, you name it, they, they, they see it. So on, on your uh, ground side, having the ground component, does that get in the way? Does it create some competition with other ALS, BLS providers? That So um, we do have some competition on the ground side. Uh, again, uh, most of our business is really focused around uh, my two owners, and then we have a contract with the Adena Health System. Okay. So we're the primary providers for those those systems, and then we'll work with the other uh, 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 providers around to help you know take up some of the slack that we can't cover and and all of that. And we do that on both the air and the ground side. Um, you know, we try to turn over where, where we need to just in the best interest of the patient. What I was thinking is that, you know, does it create some competition? I mean, where people are reluctant to refer to you for other things because you're competing on the ground side. That's, that's interesting. You know, what we see um, that competition factor is that, you know, we've got two big health systems, primary health systems that are looked at uh, as, as competitors with other health systems. And so we do see, you know, some of that come into play more than anything else is, well, you know, you're owned by Ohio Health and OSU and we don't like them necessarily. So we don't like using you and, and you know, so we get the best of all worlds and that is that we're owned by two great health systems and we get the worst of all worlds. And that is that we're owned by two great health yep. systems. I understand. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I think um, from a, a competitor state um, type of, of thing, you know, we, we try to work very well with uh, competitive uh, entities. You know, we do different partnerships. Um, uh, one of the things, and again, I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, is in the late 2000s, we started a partnership down in, in Portsmouth, Ohio, with a competitor helicopter program called HealthNet out of West Virginia. And, and we set up a program down there where we shared it 50-50 to the point where we painted the helicopter yes. <laughs> to look like HealthNet, one side to look like MedFlight. As a matter of fact, the picture behind me is that aircraft. Oh, is that the one? Yeah, I remember uh, the presentation at AMTC on that program. Yeah, we affectionately called that aircraft Sybil because she had a <laughs> personality. Yeah. Uh, and HealthNet managed it, and we would have calls. Originally, we had calls about every week just talking about the management of that base, and then we backed them down to about once a month. And, you know, during the, the 10, 15 years that we operated, um, great relationship. And I've known uh, uh, Clinton Burley, who's a good friend of mine. I've known him for years, yes. long before I came here. 
Um, and uh, just it's been a, a great relationship. On the ground side, one of the things that we're doing right now is for our critical care program, we have some hybrid uh, critical care things. So we have a, a base up in Bell Fountain, which is to the northwest of, of Columbus. And we use the local ALS BLS ambulance. They're licensed as a critical care unit. We use their vehicle and their driver. And then we put our crew in the back. of Oh, the interesting. Building and, and all of that. And excellent. Uh, Darren Robinaugh, who owns that ambulance, it, it's been just absolutely phenomenal relationship. And I think it's a win win for, for both of us. Yes. You know, yeah. It's the community the support and the buy in for the community to provide it. And, and we're able to do what we need to do. And so, you know, I, I believe, Rod, that was one of the things that Rod really pushed on is this whole comp, uh, competitive issue. And he used the term coopetition. Yeah, we need to work cooperatively with our competitors. Is he the one that coined that term? Or I don't know. <laughs> I I think if you ask him, he will say he did. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but I'll, I'll give it to him. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's interesting on the ground. I think that's fantastic. On uh, what? Why did the uh, the joint venture uh, with HealthNet uh, end? And I, I I know from hearing it, it was it was actually HealthNet that actually operated the program, right? And that MedFlight uh, put in the yep. uh, 50% of the operating cost of it. Yep, we shared, we shared expenses on that 50-50. We shared revenues 50-50. The challenge was that the base was in, in Ohio. So a lot of the patients uh, that we flew out of that base flew up to um, Ohio Health or OSU here in Columbus. I see. A few of the patients would fly down into West Virginia and their sponsoring hospital is like, well, I'm not getting, uh, you know, the downstream revenue off of this, but, you know, we're sharing in the costs. And if you know anything about Ohio, Southern Ohio is very uh, poor, um, not a lot of uh, insurance um, insured people down there. So there's a lot of self-pay. We had a lot of bad debt, a lot of uh, Medicaid types of things. And so uh, it, it was a struggle a little bit financially. And I think um, one of HealthNet's uh, sponsoring hospitals kind of finally put, you know, the kibosh on it and said, you know, we, we just can't afford to keep, you know, paying for this. So they backed out. Um, we had some discussions. Air Methods was the uh, provider down there of yep. aviation services, and we talked to them, and and they jumped uh, right up and, and offered as a, a hybrid type of program where they would take the financial risk, and then MedFlight hired all of the, the partners that worked there, um, so we brought them into the MedFlight family and just kept the, the base running as a, a Air Methods hybrid. Oh, so it is a hybrid now. They run as a hybrid. I, that I did not know. Um, talk about um, your other bases. Where are all your bases? So, yeah, so we go as far east as, as Morgan County, McConnellsville area in the southeast. We go north a, a little ways. My, my farthest bases are about two hours um, drive time from Columbus. Um, but we're really central Ohio focused. Um, and, and then because of the relationship with Kettering, my farthest West base is right on the Indiana border um, yeah, to serve them. But for the most part, we're central Ohio based and we have uh, now nine helicopter bases um, and we've got four critical care ground 
uh, bases. Do you um, do you own your aircraft, Tom? So out of the out of the ten aircraft, um, we actually own six of them. Two of them we direct lease from Milestone Aviation, and then the other two come from uh, our our air vendor, which is Metro Aviation. Um, they they lease us the other two, so out of the ten. And uh, do you have all same aircraft? And what, what kind of aircraft? EC, they're all EC 130 B4s. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes the Air Methods program that they own that aircraft down at, at Portsmouth. And that is also an EC 130 B4. So that was one of the things I think really uh, it was a difficult decision, but it was a wise decision. So we made that decision again in a, a late 2008. 2009, we decided to go, we were operating BK-117s, we had EC-135s, we had a couple different variants of the EC-135s, we had an A-star, and so, you know, pilot couldn't jump from one aircraft right. to another, crews would get into one aircraft and not know where anything is, and and everything else. So we made a conscious decision in, in 2009, 2010 to go to a unified, unified fleet, almost like, uh, um, uh, almost like uh, uh, you know, the airlines operating Southwest. Southwest, so yeah. One air, aircraft, one airframe. And now, you know, you can't tell the difference between one aircraft and another. We, we started a standardization project um, about the same time. And I'll never forget my, uh, one of my um, leaders at the time said, well, we'll standardize all these aircraft. We'll have that done in about six months. Six years later, we were still working on making sure that all the aircraft were standardized and staying that way. And one of the crew members uh, stepped up as, as kind of the lead in all of that and really sold why it's important that muscle memory to know where everything is. Absolutely. Vehicle, how many are in every vehicle? And they meet monthly to, to determine, you know, is this the right amounts? And they used uh, a principle called 290. Um, two trips, 90% of the time. And that was to take out that, you know, as a flight nurse myself, you know, I'm always conscious of, of that one time where you had the busload of hemophiliac nuns with a seizure disorder and you didn't have enough of something, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, we wanted to take that out saying, no, two runs, 90% of the time. Yeah. They've lived by that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, done that at other programs. It's real important because if you're moving from one base to another, you know, whether you're a pilot or, um, you know, a clinician, that everything's in the, the same place. On the ground vehicles, do you own those? So we do own those, okay. uh, purchase those. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, every year, you know, I'm looking at my capital budget and, you know, uh, even though we're nonprofit, I tell people we have to make money at the end of the year because yes. I just got to buy. And these vehicles cost, you know, $240,000 to replace. I got ventilators this year that, you know, or another, you know, damn near half a million dollars worth of ventilators and IV pumps and, and all of that, that you've got to replace. So you know, you've got to be making money at the end of the year to be able to. So, so how many ground units do you have? So we total? have four in-service vehicles, but I have a total of six. six yeah, vehicles. but on, so, and then on uh, the. So uh, on, the, on the ALS BLS side, I have 70. 70, 70. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That must keep you busy. That, with, that uh, does. And, yeah. and they are a very busy group. 
We, we do primary just interfacility transports, but we also do some 911 response. The way Ohio is set up, a lot of the 911 response is done by uh, um, uh, county-run EMS, public entity, uh, EMS, cities, um, and all of that. Not, not so much in our area do the privates uh, do the 911, but we do in a couple of areas uh, do 911 primary response. Yeah, okay. Um, you do a lot of remounts with the, the ground? So, so we'll do that uh, periodically. You know, we'll look and, and just change the chassis underneath the box. Um, we'll do that. Um, we're really looking at the model because, again, looking at the cost of the vehicles, you know, we were using big international um, uh, freight types of, of chassis. Right. And, mounting the boxes on there and now we're looking at kind of downsizing not too much but to more of like a, a dodge 5500 type of uh frame and um again doing the the boxes on top of that and then yeah. we'll mount those yeah that adds a lot of other complication i know when i was at uh duke university it's where i had a lot of experience with the ground side with learning about all the remounting and how many miles you can put on them um, uh, you have an air operator for your, uh, helicopters. Um, who, who are you using and had you, they always been your air operator? So when we first started the program, OSU was using PHI and, and Grant Life Flight was using OmniFlight. And so when they merged, uh, for the first couple of years, they still had two operators, um, and then they slowly got rid of PHI and OmniFlight was our operator for a number of years until they finally shut down business. And in 2010, we switched to Metro Aviation um, as our operator. And I you know, really enjoyed working with Metro Aviation. They've been a, a great partner uh, with us, um, working with us and, and yep. really support. I think their philosophies of safety and, and all of that really align with ours. So really, really been fortunate. Yeah, of, of the operators too, they sort of stayed out of getting into the independent thing and, and serving hospital-based programs. Contracts, that is correct. Are, are they doing your interiors? Too. So they did all of the interiors yeah. on the 130. That was the first time they had ever done a 130. So it was kind oh, of really? yeah. And talking to Milton Geltz at the time, he bought just the shell of a 130 to do all the pull testing that they needed to do. And so I saw the shell down there and I said, boy, that would be fun to make into a simulation type vehicle um, when you're done with it. Can I do that? And, and he's like, well, we've got a few other things that we want to do with it and, and all of that. So I didn't think anything of it. And then I went down to a customer conference a few years later and we were standing there and, and they had a demonstration. And I walked outside of the hangars out there and out in the field was this shell of the 130. And all the people that were at the customer conference were all lined up and, and Milton gets into his speech and he talks about, you know, what, what would happen if you got oxygen leak in your aircraft and you had a huge oxygen leak and then a spark went off and all of a sudden he went, bam, and the whole inside of that aircraft just erupted in flames and all of that. He exploded the inside of the aircraft. And I looked at him, I said, I wanted that shell and you blew oh. it up. Oh my God. <laughs> But then, you know, he did that for a couple of demonstrations uh, for the customers, and then the thing sat again. Well, he just called me about a month and a half ago and said, Tom, would you like this shell? 
I'm done with it now. And so he shipped it up to me. So I have a blown up shell sitting in my hand <laughs> that I'm going to be working on to try and create a uh, simulation vehicle. Out yeah, of. I think that's great. I, I see more programs doing that. I think Lifelight Network has developed one. And um, uh, I think uh, North Memorial Air Care has developed a simulator on site. And that's, that's really nice to have. I, I know AeroVac has clinical. had one. This will just be for clinical. It's not going to be for the aviation side. Oh, I see. They'll, they'll do that th themselves. This will just be, you know, for our clinical team to practice inside of a vehicle, more realistic environment. So we'll put our human patient simulator in there. We'll make them, you know, load and unload balloon pumps and everything else, just like they would normally. Yeah. Um did uh, have you ever looked at with the number of aircraft you have of doing your own part 135 or has that been a well something you that know, we have been looking at that and you know that's one of those things while i'm very happy with metro aviation and and very satisfied in in, in our relationship with them you know you've always got to be monitoring uh, costs and and what are the costs where our reimbursements are not going up uh, to compensate for the cost of aviation. And so, you know, we've been looking at, you know, is it more cost effective to have our own 135? Is it more cost effective to have a partner on that and have somebody that has a certificate and knows what they're doing? When we had fixed wing, we had our own 135 in the fixed wing. And so I managed uh, the individuals that managed our 135 certificate. And, and I learned enough back then that really, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm not an aviation person and you really need to have the expertise in aviation yes. yep. to yourself safe. Um, so, you know, the key positions uh, on a 135 certificate would be vital to make sure that you've got good people in those yeah. roles. Mandatory, had, really, yeah. Yeah, and if you had that, then having your own certificate might be a good thing. But we didn't have necessarily all the right people in those spots and it made it very difficult to have our 135 certificate for fixed wing. Uh, well, talk about that fixed wing program. Why why did uh, did you stop that? So fixed wing has always been a challenge, and I did this at Mayo as well. And I think mm -hmm. the challenge with fixed wing is that you know it's it's very uh, cost conscious because the patients, for the most part, are paying for that. Insurances don't compensate, don't don't pay for it, and so you know you've got social workers that are looking for the cheapest bid. And, and, you know, our model was not necessarily the cheapest bid because again, we were here for an emergent response. We uh, could do things in the fixed wing like balloon pumps and critical care types of patients. We operated a C90 and a B200. Um, and, and so uh, the health systems that we work for are not huge draws outside of the region. Um, at Mayo, of course, you know, patients were coming all over uh, the world to come to Mayo yes. necessarily for here in central Ohio. Now we had a partnership with the Cleveland Clinic for a while before they had their own transport system. And so we were doing a lot of fixed wing for them and, and all of that. But when we lost that partnership, it just didn't make sense. Did you use the fixed wing to back up uh, the rotor wing when they were down for weather or? weather was bad we would use fixed wing um for a little bit farther out than what yep. you know we wanted to go in in rotor wing we would use the fixed wing and that's why we had kind of an emergent response type of program where we had yeah people in. yeah yeah um 
Uh, how many, or talk about your uh, clinical staff, what the capabilities that they have, the types of thing, types of transports you do, and also maybe the differences. Uh, I, I'm, am I correct to assume that your ground critical care and your air staff will go from one vehicle to another, or is it dedicated staff? They're dedicated staff. They, that is they, okay. Ground people are dedicated to, to ground. The air people are dedicated to air, although the air people can do some transport and they pick up shifts because a lot of them came from the ground side. So they'll, they'll go back and they'll work some of the ground shifts. Um, really, as I look at uh, our ground uh, critical care division, they're really the ICU. They, they do, you know, like I said before, they'll do balloon pumps. Uh, we have a relationship with OSU um, in which we'll take perfusionists to do LVADs and ECMO types of, of transports. Um, we do our own balloon pump transports uh, on both air and ground. Um, uh, right now, because of COVID, uh, only our ground teams are doing um, the BiPAP patients um, just because of the ability they can wear the half face um, mass and, and mm -hmm. be a little more protected than, than we're set up in the air side. But most of the patients, you know, uh, it, it just depends on, you know, if, if they require, um, you know, a lot more drips or uh, equipment, then we'll send the ground trucks. Um, if, if they just need the speed and, and that high level of care, then we'll send the helicopter team. So most of them, you know, when we do our, our regular education, they're, they're intertwined. They work together on yeah. simulation and, and they all have to be, uh, required to do the same things. We operate with a nurse medic team, um, on both, um, areas. And, and really, uh, I'm, I'm blessed because I have some of the best people in the industry leading the different areas. And, and my director of education has just been absolutely phenomenal. Um, uh, I don't even want to get that out because I'm sure people will be trying to recruit her. <laughs> now. Uh, she really Should I cut that out of the... <laughs> yeah, cut that out. Uh, <laughs> no, she's been just absolutely phenomenal and, and really bring in our education uh, to uh, really much higher levels. Yeah. I, I have some questions on your education because I noticed on your website, but um, how, how many... Uh, total employees do you have with MedFlight and with MedCare? So I have a little over 500 total um, employees. And of that, you know, predominance is, is the clinical people. You know, yep. I've got probably, you know, less than 50 administrative staff. Yep. Great. Um, I noticed um, that you have a MedFlight radio program. How did this get started? And are, are these podcasts? Is that what they are? Yeah, they okay. are and that, that came about in, in early 2014. Um, at the time, one of our educators um, had this idea of doing some educational podcasts and interviewing. I think I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he got this thing going and, and um, we had a whole bunch of different, not only, you know, clinicians talking, but I think Rod Crane talked about his experience in the industry. Yeah. You know, a day in the life of a flight nurse, I, I, yeah. all kinds of fun little podcasts that they've done. And we've had just a huge following. And, and at one time, I think we had uh, listeners from pretty much all over the world, 13 different countries. Uh, we had a huge following over in Germany. 
that was listening to our podcast and yeah that's that's, that's great so those are still going on uh, they're still going today as a matter of fact i think they just are going to put one together here this week that uh, they're interviewing our, our co-medical directors. Um, yeah. So my medical director, Dr. Howie Warman, who has been the medical director since the inception, is, has been stepping away as he's tried to retire, and we keep pulling him back. <laughs> but he's being replaced by a couple of uh, newer medical directors, and so they're going to do something, I think, later this week. Oh, great. So is that indexed on iTunes? Can people get to I, that? Yeah, I get it off of the Apple podcast. That's where okay. I Yeah. So uh, uh, I think it is in, in other podcasts. So for everybody listening, that's it's called MedFlight Radio. MedFlight right? Radio. Yep. Um, you also have a, an online virtual education program. I think it's through um, even Eventbrite. Uh, tell us about this. And uh, can clinicians actually get um, continuing education credit by doing those? We have partnered with uh, different entities to do uh, some of these um, virtual stuff. So we had a health system uh, late last year that that wanted to do it. And so we did a series of about three or four nights um, and we had over a thousand people uh, attend these virtual sessions. Um, I think the uh, health systems then offer up the CEs and all of that. We have two events right now that we're working on. One that uh, I think there's one tonight, actually, with Ohio Health in conjunction with Ohio Health and then MedFlight. Um, uh, and, and we're doing uh, three, I think, three different nights uh, of educational virtual sessions. Um, I believe that Ohio Health will be offering CEs up for those. Um, we also had uh, an event that we've done three of. Now we've done two of them, and we still have one more to do with OSU. And that that one I don't think has any CEs with it because it's really about how to incorporate social media into your business and, oh. and all that. And, and we're using the experts not only here at MedFlight because we've got a great person that runs all of our social media, but also an expert over at OSU to talk about how that can be incorporated. It doesn't just have to be healthcare. It can be, you know, whatever your business model is. Can anybody take advantage of that? I saw it on your website. Can Yeah, uh, I think if they if they search it, uh, it should be out there. I'm not quite sure. It's off your website, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not um, that technical. I know that my computer works in the ON position and doesn't work in the OFF position. <laughs> so um, you have a membership program there, and I know that, Part of that's because uh, some of your competitors do too. Um, uh, when was this developed and uh, what is covered? I noticed there's like an Advantage and then a, an Advantage Gold program. What what are those yeah. differences? So we started a membership program years ago when one of our competitors uh, came into the state, had a membership program, and Rod decided that, well, we should have one too. And, and you know, ours would be, you know, a little bigger uh, and cover a little bit more in that we had our ALS BLS partner at the time agreed to doing it. So if anybody oh. was transported by Medicare, they would be covered. If they were transported by our helicopter or ground critical care, they would be covered. And then there was another additional point that we worked with AirMed International out of Birmingham, Alabama to offer up Global, which the, the person would pay a little extra and then have a membership with AirMed International as well. So if you were overseas or something. Yeah, yeah. so we're more than 200 miles away from 
Uh, Columbus, they would cover, you know, the fixed wing piece of, of all of that. We really haven't pushed the membership program because we got into contract with most of the insurance companies. Um, and so a lot of the people were covered that way. And then we have a very uh, aggressive um, charity care policy that mirrors uh, Ohio Health and OSU to where we write off uh, patients that just don't, they have the financial need and can't, right. can't pay and all of that. So really our membership program outside of a few people outside of uh, our actual employees, the membership program is really only for our employees at this point and they got automatically enrolled and we pay for them. So um, do you have a, a your own government relations staff, you know, both at the state and federal level, do you have, um, uh, or do you coordinate with your, your consortium members on that? So uh, I have uh, a person on my staff who uh, is a nurse and a lawyer. Um, oh, so she's nice. a risk manager. Um, she does all of our legal affairs. She does our corporate compliance. She does all of that. And then she also sits on the Ames Government Relations Committee. That's one of the things that she does. And she's very, uh, very adept at, at all of that legalese that goes with government relations and, and all of that. But um, we really try to, to, you know, watch what's going on out there. And, uh, you know, we'll voice our opinions where is necessary, either through our uh, selves or through our association of uh, uh, Ohio Association of Critical Care Transport, OACCT, um, through Ames or through the Ohio Ambulance um, uh, Association. So, yeah, yeah. Um, anything you're doing in preparing for the balance billing legislation that passed at the end of last year? I'm, I'm trying to bury my head in the sand as much as I can <laughs> because, you know, I was really interested as, as this was moving forward that, you know, it was, it was one of those things that, um, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? You know, I mean, there were a lot of different people pushing, uh, you know, this balance billing. It's not good to, you know, charge these patients $65,000, put liens on their houses and, and everything else, which is why we went into contract and tried to get in contract with all right. of the insurance companies. And I couldn't figure out about a year ago, I'm pushing, you know, to re-up our contract, get our rates changed and all of that. And some of the insurance companies wouldn't even talk to me. They just, you know, we're not interested in changing. This is the way it is. And, and you know, so we're watching this legislation. And I, I truly didn't think that this thing would be passed. I really thought that there would be, you know, enough pushback on it. And, and when it did pass, it was like, okay, we've got to really, you know, be looking at what, what do we need to do now? Because again, I have some insurance companies that I've been in contract with that don't want to talk to me about, you know, yeah. uh, increasing the rates and we're going to have to, you know, cost of everything is going up. I can't keep at that rate, but they don't want to do that. So we're, we're concerned about where this might end up and, and where this might lead us. Um, because we know that Medicare rates do not cover our costs by right. any but, or or Medicaid, um, yeah, yeah, it's Medicaid, um, Medicaid's even worse. You know, I mean, yep. they're pennies on the dollar, where Medicare is dimes on the dollar. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. A lot of negotiation work that has to be done uh, before that's fully implemented in twenty twenty two. I think was the time. Um, I you were on the podcast early last year when COVID first hit. You know, I checked in with a number of the programs. Um, 
how, how has COVID impacted your operations? Or, you know, are you taking extra precautions? Has it caused some staffing shortages of just your own staff getting COVID? Yeah, so, so yeah, it was interesting. We bought the ambulance company uh, in the beginning of March and then middle of March, COVID hit. And one of the first things that we ended up seeing is uh, hospitals were getting prepared to be overrun. And so they wanted to set up a, a, a location here in Columbus at the convention center, similar to what they did in New York City, set up a secondary site. We, we helped set up the, the site down at the convention center to get another thousand beds. And then we had the transport program. We talked to a lot of the private ambulances. How would we move patients and, and everything else? Well, we never got to that point. Um, and what we ended up seeing was a diminished number of, of transports because they weren't doing elective surgeries. They were, you know, trying not to move patients that, you know, didn't have to be moved. And, and uh, so uh, one of the hats that I wear uh, is right now I'm the president of the Central Ohio Trauma Systems, which is uh, kind of a group that's made up of a lot of the hospitals, EMS agencies, and all of that. And it's just really a forum for everybody to get together and, and collaborate and all of that. And so we, we took action as COTS in, in forming uh, this group where every, every morning we were talking. And, and hospital A was telling how many COVID patients they had, how many beds they had available, how much staff they had out, and then hospital B and C and D. Right. And we developed this, this process where instead of moving those patients from the uh, outlying hospitals into central Ohio, we were moving them from one outlying hospital to another outlying hospital, yep. uh, lateral transfers to keep you know, things balanced. Um, and so that created a problem uh, with the private ambulances because now all of a sudden, instead of going 15 miles into this location, I'm going 35 miles to this other hospital to equal the things out. And, uh, and the cost of, of PPE on all of that, because you just never know. And so we were a, a fairly uh, COVID and, uh, off of major exposures um, to uh, patients. Um, um, could you and, um, could you repeat staff. that? Could you repeat that? Because it it um, I was I lost you lost you there for a second. Yeah. On... So I think we've been very fortunate. I think in the since COVID hit, I think we've only had about two patients uh, exposures um, to to our crew, two major exposures to where we had to quarantine our crew and all of that. All of the exposures that our crew have had have been through personal exposure and and now they've been exposed at home and so they're off yes. duty and, and all of that yeah um, but we really have been very fortunate not having a, a whole lot of impact that way we've had it at one point i think we had out of the 350 to almost 400 people at medcare about 25 people off at one point um, otherwise that was probably our peak. Um, that was, I think, right after Thanksgiving, we saw a big bolt uh, of, of people off. So did really the, did your number of transports go up? I know initially when I um, was checking in with programs, they saw transports go down. They but dropped now, down significantly initially. Yeah. Um, it dropped down significantly because hospitals, again, weren't moving patients. And it seemed like patients weren't even going into the hospital. That's where sick people were. So they didn't want to go into the hospital, right? Um, and then we saw our numbers kind of stabilize off. Um, I don't know that our, our volumes ever went 
up, so to speak. But you know, they they uh, they got more to uh, normal stages in in the summer in July, August, um, somewhere around that time frame. We started seeing our numbers stabilize off, and um, we haven't seen a huge um, huge drop again since then. So. But like I said, what we have noticed is, is that, um, and I shared this with my board just this week, um, since, uh, since June, we've seen an increase of about five loaded miles on our ground ambulance. Now that doesn't seem like a whole lot, but when you're doing 5,000 calls a month, times that five miles, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. 12, 12 extra hours to complete those, those trips yeah. um, every day. So, you know, it significantly impacts just that small detail. Um, with the, uh, uh, when you were breaking up the, the Central Ohio Trauma System Board, so is that, was that something that was formed because of COVID or was, did it exist before that? So Central Ohio Trauma Systems was formed um, years and years ago before I even came into to Columbus. And it was really set up to, to be a collaboration of all the hospitals talking about trauma and how uh, okay. we're at trauma care in Central Ohio and all of that. Uh, and then it kind of grew and we added um, EMS agencies, uh, Columbus Fire and some of the surrounding fire departments to talk about you know what happens if uh, hospital A is overrun with patients. Can we send patients to hospital B and really collaborate in moving patients around so that we don't have a situation where diversions are creating problems for patients? Um, and, and so we really work together and it's really a, a, a great group. Uh, all the hospitals in, in the primary area, plus all of Southeast Ohio, Southern Ohio, we all do all the disaster management oversight for them. Um, we did set up because of COVID, we set up a lot of, uh, stuff, uh, through COTS. It's been a, a fabulous group. The, the, um, people over there are really committed and, and, uh, wonderful at doing their job and protecting the citizens of central Southeastern. And, and, and you're serving as president, right? And I am serving as president right now. Uh, oh. just another one of those things that you just got to be careful when, when they ask the question that it is answer isn't always yes. Um, yeah. because then you end up in uh, positions like, well, that. it shows, it shows a lot about your leadership. I think that's great. Um, is MedFlight a member of AIMS and ACT? And um, I, so I know we you are were... a member of AIMS, but we're not a member of ACT. Okay. Uh, we've been a member of AIMS since the beginning. Um, actually, my, my predecessor, Rod Crane, um, was an early adopter of AIMS back when it was Ash Beams. And yes. He was the very fixed wing program to join AIMS. Right. So. Yeah. So, and you were, uh, I know we served on the board together. Yep. You were a board member of Ames, right? Yeah, I was a board member for, boy, uh, 97 to 2005, so almost 10 years. I was on the board. I had uh, uh, been vice president of the board. I've been secretary treasurer. Yes. Just pretty much every every role on the board and all of that. And again, I, I go back to the, you know, there's a saying, government is run by those who show up. You know, we have no room to complain about what's going on if we're not going to be a voice to be heard. So yeah, got to be involved. Yeah. Is if I want to fix the world, I got to participate in it. 
You were uh, also a, a regent uh, with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute. Uh, when did you become a regent and how long have you served now? I went to school uh, and, and got my CMT in 2001 and then I joined as a regent in 2002. So I've been a regent since 2002. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, great. I think that was one of the wonderful program and I was uh, very pleased to be part of that too. Um, what classes do you teach so right now, uh, I am teaching uh, uh, kind of an HR class on dealing with uh, uh, employees and, and all of that, yeah. a little bit of HR law and all of that. I did teach uh, some on culture. I taught some on uh, employee engagement. Um, and then uh, I do a second year class on advanced leadership, um, really, as we uh, go through there, you know, I learned as much, if not more than I think the students do there. And, and that second year class is really just a free dialogue with people to say, okay, give me a problem that you've had. How yeah. would you solve it? How have others solved it? And learn that, you know, we all have the same problems. We all have the same individuals, just different faces, different names, and how we deal with them, you know, may be different. And it's nice to learn from others so that you don't have to recreate it all the time. Yeah, it's been... Uh... I think I came after I left, I came back for a graduate year, then came back and taught, I think, a couple of years after that because you needed some instructors. Uh, so it was great. To, it's always a, a week that I'd look uh, forward to. Um, was it uh, a lot different this year with going virtual? Was it? Yeah, so that was really difficult. And of course, you know, some of the, the real benefit of MTLI is is really the the interactions that you have with the students and, yeah. and they have with each other and and the networking uh, is probably the biggest piece. So, you know, we've struggled with that, trying to figure out, you know, can we make MTLI more virtual? We did that as a grad school this last fall, and I think it was fairly successful. We had some great speakers, um, and and it was uh, you know really good from that aspect, but. You know, anybody that's attended MTLI, you know, would know that like the second year group project, I think that would be really hard to try and do virtually. You know, you, you get tasked with a, a very difficult case to try and solve in, in three, four days. How do you do that virtually versus in person where you can sit there with, you know, yeah. uh, flip charts and, you know, really... Um, putting your heads together on solving it. So not quite sure. We're still looking at how we might be able to manage that in a virtual world, but um, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's not exactly that. I can see maybe, you know, some of the graduate seminars, kind of what AMTC did this year, you know, with going virtual, but uh, still nice. It's such a great experience um, and one that you don't forget. I mean, it's how successful that program has been and Thank you for all your work with that. That's um, probably another one of those things that I put as a highlight of, of my career. That's yes, me too. It's fun. Even though it's a volunteer, you get paid nothing. Um, and, and you think, well, I'm going to Wheeling, West Virginia. Where is Wheeling, <laughs> West Virginia? And, and you remember the early yep. days where you went there and you had to drive half a mile up the mountain to be able to get any kind of cell signal. You, yes, you know, right. Completely yeah. disconnected. Yeah. Uh, but beautiful area. Ogle Bay has been a great partner in, yeah. in MTLI for many years. I think that's been, the, it's been the magic of it. You know, I think it was really Don Mancuso, you know, who was the Ames executive director at the time that really 
got us involved with that. Um, um, you're also a site surveyor with uh, the Commission on Accreditation of uh, Medical Transport Systems. I uh, am a site surveyor for them. Um, and I've been doing that since the early 2000s. And again, it, it's, it's great because I get to see programs and see how they're doing things. And, you know, as you look at CAMES, you look at the standards that CAMES has set, you know, and it's really about, you know, how you're meeting the standard and to learn through the years. I mean, when I first did it, you know, everybody was going to the OR uh, to get intubation experience. Um, and human patient simulators really weren't out there. And we saw some programs early on doing cadavers and we're thinking, well, that isn't, you know, going to the OR, how can you be, you know, doing it that way, but learning and seeing how yeah. others meeting the standards is, has been great. And I've learned so much again from other programs and, and the great things that they're doing. And it, it drives, I think my own company crazy. Cause I always come back with ideas. Oh, this is cool. This is how <laughs> doing it. Tom was just on another survey. Yeah. It's uh, I think it's fantastic. I've always encouraged that because I think you do learn so much by going to other programs. Um, you know, that, the time that you put in pays off in spades with what, what you learn. So um, one thing I was looking, I just have a few more questions that you were, uh, I didn't realize this and I, I might've either forgotten or maybe didn't know you at the time, but you had received the uh, prestigious Marriott Carlson award in, in 2002 while at Mayo. Um, uh, what was this for? And um yeah, so the Marriott Carlson is is something that I'm really proud of. It, yeah, you know it's uh, excellence and kind of leadership and and all of that. And um, you know, you never think you're worthy of receiving awards, and I truly didn't think I was um, that same year. Um, it, it was great, and I, I probably relish it even more is that Mayo received Program of the Year that year that I got. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, I don't know which one I was, you know, more happy with my own personal or the, the one for the team. And I really, I think the program of the year meant a whole lot more to me than yep. Marriott Carlson, but to see the people, uh, that have won the Marriott Carlson and to be considered in those ranks is just, you know, Oh yeah, that's, uh, I had, I, I guess I either didn't know or forgotten that uh, you had received that. That's uh, congratulations. That is, uh, I think, probably one of the most prestigious awards in our industry. So, and then speaking of program of the year, uh, MedFlight uh, received that in 2014. And uh, um, yep. So that was kind of you know it was great because I knew that Rod was looking at retiring and. And he had really built this this program and, and company into what it was. And so I was really pleased that we were able to get that award before he had retired. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nice award. I, I don't know, you know, they should do. I remember uh, LifeLink, we got it in 2017. I remember a new employee says, well, what are you going to do this year? <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, you know, can you apply for multiple years or is there one for the decade or something? But how do you, how do you top that? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, just a few personal questions. I know uh, you and your wife, Anne have been married 35 years, have a large family of five children. What, what are the ages of your children? My oldest uh, is uh, 33 
He actually well, lives in Seattle right now. Uh, I use him as an example a lot because he just graduated last year uh, with his PhD in aerospace engineering. So wow. he's a bona fide rocket scientist. Um, so whenever I uh, try to present something to the staff and all of that, I tell them that I've run this through a rocket scientist and I know that this isn't rocket science. So <laughs> you know, do that. And then um, I've got another son uh, who lives in Charlotte. Um, and then I've got three daughters and my youngest is now uh, a uh, junior at the Ohio State University. Um, she's 20, and then I've got a 25-year-old daughter who uh, is a nurse at, at OSU. Oh, so you do have somebody that went into yeah. uh, healthcare. Yeah. Her daughter, uh, you know, works in a, a group home. She's not a nurse or uh, any of that, but she really takes care of people and is probably the most service-oriented out of all of my kids. Yeah. And does a job. So you, you guys are empty nesters, or is there still someone well, at we home? We are empty nesters. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So my, my poor wife has to put up with me now. And <laughs> we do still have two dogs. So that, yeah. that occupies our time. And yeah, that's, that's great. I didn't realize your kids were that old, or I guess, you know, just time goes by so quickly that you forget that yeah, your kids grow up too. So, um, and so what do you do for fun? I know, uh, I remember one year, I think I still have the picture of us golfing together at the, uh, the, uh, you know, Medivac Foundation golf outing, but are you still golfing? Is that? Yeah, periodically, you know, yeah. between, you know, trying to, you know, manage it at work and then um, some semblance of, of uh, life at home, I'll get a few rounds of golf in, but probably my biggest, uh, uh, you know, hobby is I still run. Uh, I you still do? Run. Okay. Uh, not as fast. Um, you know, you can lock me on a calendar these days, but uh, it, it is still one of those passions of mine that uh, I do. I'm uh, signed up for a half marathon. We've got a team for MedFlight doing oh, a half great. marathon this spring, and um, I've done you know over 20 um, marathons. Wow. I've got almost all of my kids to do either a half marathon or a full marathon with me. Um, so, uh, just did a, a marathon, uh, in Columbus in 2019 with my middle daughter. That was her first marathon. So my oh, son, my son is an ultra marathoner. So he does hundred milers. And oh, I, said, well, I will crew you, but I'm not going to run <laughs> Yeah, hundred miles beyond. Yeah. I, I used to run all the time, but then I tore my medial meniscus uh, from running. So I had to that's when I took up bicycling, you know, because yeah. I, I didn't want to ruin my skiing. So, which I still do a lot of. So, so Tom, anything else that you'd like to say about uh, MedFlight or anything no, else I that just, we might not have covered? Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, took a risk um, 16 years ago, took a risk in moving my family 700 miles from our native land of Minnesota to Ohio not really knowing what I was going to get into and, and what was going to um, uh, end up. But, you know, it, it's been one of those things that, you know, uh, I can't remember who it was that made the statement, you know, uh, you score zero times on all of those shots you never take, you know, so I had to take a shot. And, yeah. and 
I have never looked back. Um, MedFlight is such a phenomenal organization to work with. Um, you know, one of the things that drew me here was Rod really wanted to pitch an idea of servant leadership uh, within the leadership team. And so I embarked on that, that realm of really it, it really learning about servant leadership and, and it just fit and it just fit with my style. And uh, I, I truly enjoy being a servant to these people um, yep. that I work for out here. Um, they are just absolutely phenomenal people. Every week I get to put together an article that just highlights all the great things that our people do. And I, I tell you, I get people submitting stuff all the time about just the different things that our partners do for each other, for their patients, all of that. And it's really a boost on a Friday after a long week to put this article together and, and just know that's why we're here. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not directly taking care of these patients, but I'm enabling the people that do to do their job. And, and that's just such a wonderful feeling. Yeah. So, so you must've convinced some of the ones when you were interim that were a little wary of your leadership that uh, you are a true some of them bought in after, after, after a year and they saw it, they still were not bought in, you know, right away. But I think <laughs> over time, over time, I think they've, they've learned to accept that, that, you know, there, there are two Toms. There was one that was the uh, vice principal enforcer, Tom. And then there's the one who, you know, was trying to be more strategic and. Yep. Uh, Sometimes both are needed. So. Well, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really enjoyed uh, talking to you on the podcast today. Thank you, Edward. Really appreciate it. It's great having you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com, iTunes, or on the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. A special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for writing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.